Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast for Book 3, Chapter 7. It seems the locals have a lot to say about the Buddenbrooks, and Morton doesn't want to associate with them, the locals, that is. Hajjo Moron says, There was definitely a bit of social manoeuvring on the beach. From all the fawning and gossiping, it is apparent that the Buddenbrooks are still the preeminent family. Also, the fact that young Morton removes himself from these petty rituals makes him all the more likable. Swim says, I believe Morton and his family are from a lower social class when the Buddenbrooks, than the Buddenbrooks and others. Morton would have been snubbed if he had joined the group, which he well knew. The Buddenbrooks are not staying at the fancy resort. I wonder if this is because the business has not been doing well and they've had to make economies. Techrific says, I think that is what is implied. Zock says Martin, uh, Morton is the only character in the book so far who is described to be blushing, other than Elizabeth, the consul's wife, one time in chapter 1.6 after hearing Hoft's Steed's poem. What was that that happened right at the end? Tony said loudly she wishes August Mollendorf were here, who in 3.5 on their way to Travelmundi was said is going to soon be engaged to Julie. What was the aim of that? Was she trying to piss off Julie, distract her from Morton, or even was it actually said loudly so that Morton will hear? Swim said the moment fishy says, Having been a teenage girl back in the day, I'm going with all three. You reckon it was just a provocative thing to say, and that's why she said it. Maybe that's the case. Whatever the case, I'm going to read you chapter eight, chapter 8 now, which goes like this. And now began for Tony Buddenbrook a stretch of beautiful summer weeks, briefer, lovelier than any she had ever spent in Truvamundi. She bloomed as she felt her burden no longer upon her. Her gay, pert, careless manner had come back. The consul looked at her with satisfaction when he, he came on Sundays with Tom and Christian. On those days they ate at the table d'hote, sat under the awnings at the pastry cooks, drinking coffee and listening to the band, and peeped into the roulette room, at the gay folk there, like Justice Kroger and Peter Dolman, the console himself never played. Tony sunned herself, took baths, ate sausages with ginger nut sauce and took long walks with Morton. They went out on the high road to the next village or along the beach to the Ocean Temple on its height, whence a wide view was to be had over land and sea or to the woods behind the Kerr house where was a great bell used to call the guests to the table de haute. Sometimes they rode across the trave to the Prival to look for Amber. Morton made an entertaining companion, though his opinions were often dogmatic, not to say heated. He had a severe and righteous judgment for everything, and he expressed it with finality, blushing all the time. It saddened Tony to hear him call the nobility idiots and wretches, and to see the contemptuous, if awkward, gesture that accompanied the words. She scolded him, but... She was proud to have him express so freely in her presence the views and opinions which she knew he concealed from his parents. Once he confided in her, I'll tell you something, I have a skeleton in my room at Göttingen, a whole set of bones, you know, held together by wire. I've put an old policeman's uniform on it, haha, <laughs> isn't that great? But don't say anything to my father about it. Tony was naturally often in the society of her town friends, all drawn into some assembly, or boating party. Then Morton sat on the rocks, 
and after their first day this phrase became a convenient one, to sit on the rocks meant to feel bored and lonely. When a rainy day came, and a grey mist covered the sea far and wide till it was one with the deep sky, when the beach was drenched and the roads steaming with, with wet, Tony would say, Today we shall both have to sit on the rocks, that is, in the veranda or the sitting room. There is nothing left to do but for you to play me some of your student songs, Morton, even if they do bore me horribly. Yes, Morton said, come and sit down. But you know that when you are here there are no rocks. He never said such things when his father was present. His mother, he did not mind. Well, what now? asked the pilot captain. As Tony and Morton both rose from table and were about to take their leave, where are the young folk off to? I was going to take a little walk with Fraulein Antoni as far as the temple. Oh, is that it? Well, my son Phileas, what do you say to going up to your room and coning, conning over your nerves? You will lose everything out of your head before you get back to Gottingen, but Frau Schwarzkopf would intervene. Now, Diedrich, aren't these his holidays? Why shouldn't he take a walk? Is he to have nothing of our visitor? So Morton went. They paced along the beach close to the water on the smooth, hard sand that made walking easy. It was strewn with common tiny white mussel shells and others too, pale, opalescent and longish in shape, yellow-green, wet seaweed with hollow round fruit that snapped when you squeezed it and pale, translucent, reddish-yellow jellyfish which were poisonous and burned your leg when you touched one bathing. I used to be frightfully stupid, you know, Tony said. I wanted the bright star out of the jellyfish, so I brought a lot home in my pocket handkerchief and put them on the balcony to dry in the sunshine. When I looked at them again, of course, there was just a big wet spot that smelled of seaweed. The waves whispered rhythmically beside them as they walked, and the salt wind blew in their faces streaming over about them, closing their ears to the sounds and causing a pleasant slight giddiness. They walked in this hushed, whispering peacefulness by the sea whose every faint murmur, near or far, seemed to have a deep significance. To their left was a precipitous cliff of lime and boulders with jutting corners that came into view as they rounded the bay. When the beach was too stony to go on, they began to climb and continued upward through the wood until they reached the temple. It was a round pavilion built of rough timbers and boards, the inside of which was covered with scribbled inscriptions and poetry, carved hearts and initials. Tony and Morton seated themselves in one of the little rooms facing the sea. It smelled of wood, like the cabins at a bathhouse. It was very quiet, even solemn, up here at this hour of the afternoon. A pair of birds chattered, and the faint rustling of the leaves mingled with the sound of the sea spread out below them. In the distance they could see the rigging of a ship, Sheltered now from the wind <clears throat> that had been thrumming at their ears, they suddenly experienced a quiet, almost pensive mood. Tony said, Is it coming or going? What? asked Morton, his subdued voice sounding as if he were coming back from a far distance. Oh, going. That is the Bergmeister Steenbock for Russia. He added after a pause, I shouldn't like to be going with it. It must be worse there than here. Now, Tony said, you're going to begin again on the nobility. I see it in your face, and it's not all a nice. It's all. It's not at all nice of you. Tell me, did you ever know a single one of them? No, Morton shouted, quite insulted. Thank God, no. 
Well, there then. I have um, Armguard von Schilling over there that I told you about. She was much better natured than either of us. She hardly knew she was a von. She ate sausage meat and talked about her cows. Of course, there are natural exceptions. Listen, Fraulein Tony, you're a woman, you see, so you take everything personally. You happen to know a single member of the nobility, and you say she is a good creature, certainly, but one does not need to know any of them to be able to judge them all. It is a question of the principle, you understand, of the organisation of the state. You can't answer that, can you? They need only to be born to be the pick of everything and look down on all the rest of us, while we, however hard we strive, cannot climb to their level. Morton spoke with a naive, honest irritation. He tried to fit his speech with gestures, then perceived that they were awkward and gave it up. But he was in the vein to talk, and he went on, sitting bent forward, with his thumb between the buttons of his jacket, a defiant expression in his usually good-natured eyes. We, the bourgeoisie, the third estate, as we have been called, we recognise only that nobility, which consists of merit, we refuse to admit any longer the rights of the indolent aristocracy. We repudiate the class distinctions of the present day. We desire that all men should be free and equal, that no person shall be subject to another, but all subject to the law. There shall be no more privilege, an arbitrary rule. All shall be sovereign children of the state, and as no middlemen exist, no longer between the people and Almighty God, so shall the citizens stand in direct relation to the state. We will have freedom of the press, of trade and industry, so that all men without distinction shall be able to strive together and receive their reward according to their merit. We are enslaved, muzzled. What was it I wanted to say? Oh yes, four years ago they renewed, they renewed the laws of the Confederation touching the universities and the press. Fine laws they are. No truth may be written or taught which might not agree with the established order of things. Do you understand? The truth is suppressed, forbidden to be spoken. Why? For the sake of an obsolete, idiotic, decadent class which everybody knows will be destroyed some day anyhow. I do not think you can comprehend such meanness. It is the stupid, brutal application of force, the immediate physical strength of the police, without the slightest understanding of new spiritual forces, and apart from all that, there is the final fact of the great wrong the King of Prussia has done us. In 1813, when the French were in the country, he called us together and promised us a constitution. We came to the rescue. We, rescue, we freed Germany from the invader. Tony, chin in hand, stole a look at him and wondered for a moment if he could have actually helped to drive out Napoleon. But do you think he kept his promise? Oh no. The present king is a fine orator, a dreamer, a romantic like you, Fraulein Tony, but I'll tell you something. Take any general principle or conception of life. It always happens that directly it has been found wanting and discarded by the poets and philosophers. There comes along a king to whom it is a perfectly new idea and who makes it a guiding principle. That is what kings are like. It is not only that kings are men, they are even very distinctly average men. They are always a good way in the rear. Oh yes, Germany is just like a student's society. It had its brave and spirited youth at the time of the Great Revolution, but now it is just a lot of fretful Philistines. Yes, Tony said, but let me ask you this. Why are you so interested in Prussia? Aren't you... you aren't a Prussian? Oh, it is all the same thing, Fraulein Buddenbrook. Yes, I said Fraulein Buddenbrook on purpose. I ought even to have said Demoiselle Buddenbrook, and given you your entire title. 
are the men here freer, more brotherly, more equal than Prussia? Conventions, classes, aristocracy here as there. You have sympathy for the nobility. Shall I tell you why? Because you belong to it yourself. Yes, if you didn't know it. Your father is a great gentleman and you are a princess. There is a gulf between you and us because we do not belong to your circle of ruling families. You can walk on the beach with us, one of us, for the sake of your health. But when you get back into your own class, then the rest of us can go and sit on the rocks. His voice had grown quite strangely excited. Morton, said Tony sadly, you have been angry all the time then when you were sitting on the rocks and I always begged you to come and be introduced. Now you are taking the affair personally again, like a young lady, Fraulein Tony. I'm only speaking of the principle. I say that there is no more fellowship of humanity with us than in Prussia, and even if I were speaking personally, he went on after a little pause, with a softer tone, out of which, however, the strange excitement had not disappeared. I shouldn't be speaking of the present, but rather, perhaps, of the future. When you, as Madame So-and-so, finally vanish into your proper sphere, one is left to sit on the rocks all the rest of one's life. He was silent and Tony was too. She did not look at him, but in the other direction, and the wooden partition. There was an uneasy stillness for some time. Do you remember? Morton began again. I once said to you that there was a question I wanted to ask you. Yes, I have wanted to know since the first afternoon you came. Don't guess, you couldn't guess what I mean. I'm going to ask you another time. There's no hurry. It has really nothing to do with me. It's only a curiosity. Now today I will only show you one thing. Look. He drew out of his pocket of his jacket the end of a narrow, gaily striped ribbon and looked with a mixture of expectation and triumph into Tony's eyes. How pretty, she said uncomprehendingly. What is it? Morton spoke solemnly. That means that I belong to a student's fraternity in Gottingen. Now you know I have a cap in the same colours, but my skeleton in the policeman's uniform is wearing it for the holidays. I couldn't be seen here with it. You understand? I can count on you saying nothing, can't I? Because it would be very unfortunate if my father were to hear of it. Not a word, Morton. You can rely on me, but I don't understand. Have you all taken a vow against the nobility? What is it you want? We want freedom, Morton said. Freedom? she asked. Yes, freedom, you know, freedom, he repeated. He made a vague, awkward, fervent gesture outward and downward, not towards the side where the coast of Mecklenburg lay narrowed the bay, but in the direction of the open sea, whose rippling blue, green, yellow and grey stripes rolled, as far as the eye could see, out to the misty horizon. Tony followed his gesture with her eye. They sat their hands lying close together on the beach, on the bench, and looked into the distance. Thus they remained in silence a long time while the sea sent up to them its soft enchanting whispers. Tony suddenly felt herself one with Morton in a great, vague, yearning comprehension of his portentous something which he called freedom. Alright, there we go. That's that chapter for you. Done. Morton into some serious political... Uh, revolution type stuff. Pretty cool. All right. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.